can turn to Malachi chapter 2. And in considering the faithful, steadfast love of our Lord, we see in this text an opposite example, one that makes us eternally grateful for the unending love of God. For we have before us another human example in Malachi 2 of faithlessness in love, which is all too common of the human experience. As we gather our hearts and minds to this text, would you pray with me as we come to it? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice in the clarity of your word, and we receive this word by faith. We know you have spoken it through your prophet. You have eternally and perfectly fulfilled it in and through your son, who is your yes and your amen to all things. And you now seek to instruct our hearts by your spirit, renewing our minds and conforming us to the image of your son. So we pray that you would take this, your word, and do that very thing. Father, would you reach into the lives of those who have in their own heart a lack of committed faithfulness to their marriage? Would you strengthen their bond to the spouse of their youth through this text? For those who are looking forward to marriage, would you fill their minds and their hearts with your mind on the matter, that they would think your thoughts after you and thereby act in marriage as you have so ordained to your glory? And for those who are hurting in light of marriage for some reason or another, would you use this text and its, its proclamation to comfort and encourage and strengthen their soul and build their faith in our Lord Jesus, our perfect and eternally loving husbandman of the church. We praise you for him. We ask Lord, that you would fix our eyes upon him from this text. In Jesus' name, amen. As we come to this text, we come to an Old Testament text, but we come with a New Testament mindset and approach. When Paul was writing to the church in Corinth, he instructed them how to think about Old Testament happenings, and, and particularly Old Testament failings in the people of God in the Old Testament. He says it this way in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6. He says, now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down and to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has taken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to Endure it. So we come to Malachi 2 with that fresh in our hearts and our minds, seeking to learn from the negative example of the people of God in Malachi's day. We do not want to repeat their error. 
We do not want to walk in the same faithlessness that they did. We do not want to multiply their sins in our own lives. And so he addresses his people through his prophet at the end of chapter 2. And when he does, he gets to the heart of the problem in Judah. We saw the the big problem in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, is that they have wondered whether or not God loves them. They've lost account of of if God truly cares anymore because he hasn't kept the promises that he spoke through the prophet Zechariah. The, The eternal kingdom of God has not yet come. Does he care? Does he love us? Beyond that, Malachi went to confront the priests and their uh, polluted offerings, their worthless worship. They had lost sight of the love of God, therefore their worship waned and was wearisome to God and worthless to God. And because of that, the Lord says the priests have corrupted the covenant that he made with their forefather, Levi. We looked at that last week in verses 1 through 9. But now Malachi zooms out from the, the priestly families to the whole scope of the people of God. And he says, you, O people of Judah, there there is sin in the camp. There is a massive problem, and it's one of the fundamental problems of that generation of God's people. In fact, God calls it an abomination in his midst, one that if they commit, they should be thrown out of the camp. This is serious stuff. I want you to notice how the pronouns change from chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, to chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. And 1 through 9, the pronouns were all the second person plural you. It was a very prophetic condemnation of the priestly families. You guys have messed up. You guys have broken the covenant God made with your forefathers. Now as we come into into verse 10, the pronouns change to the first person plural, we and us. Malachi puts on his pastoral hat and addresses his people as though he is among them, as one who cares and among them as one who sees the problem clearly from the sight of God. His tone is still direct, still dripping with concern for God's people, but it is loving and caring. So what's the problem? See if you can pick that up as I read verses 10 through 16. What is this sin that is in the camp in Judah? Verse 10, Judah is called to account by Malachi. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another? profaning the covenant of our fathers. Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Did you catch the main problem being 
confronted by the prophet. There's a, a few keys in the text to help us unlock what the problem is. One of those keys is the key word of faithless or unfaithful. It's used five times in the text. He, he says that they were faithless to one another in verse 10. And then he says in verse 11 that Judah has been faithless as a whole. He tells them again in verse 14, they have been faithless. And then in verses 15 and 16, he calls them to guard their spirits or to guard their hearts so that they would not be faithless. So how is it that they're being faithless? Well, they're profaning the covenant of their fathers. It's a, a grave abomination that's being committed among them. So much so, the prophet says, that the very temple of God, which is the manifest presence of God among the people of God, that very temple has been profaned by whatever it is they are doing. So what have they done? This is a, a serious matter, a deadly serious matter. What is it that they have done? Well, it seems that they have tolerated a godless practice in their midst. And, and what is that? Well, you want me to answer the question. I know I keep asking it. What is it? Well, they've been divorcing their wives at any whim they so choose, so as to marry foreign wives. And then they've gone on like business as usual. Like they haven't violated any of God's commands or in any way hindered their relationship with Him. And, and then they wonder why it is that God's not regarding their offerings, their prayers, and their sacrifices. You see, they know something's wrong in the land. Not everything's right in Judah, and they know that. But they think the problem is with God. And God sends His prophet to say, no, the problem is with you. He's there to set the record straight. Well, why is it that they were divorcing their wives and marrying foreign women just because they wanted to? They just desired to do that? Maybe. But you'll remember that Malachi is prophesying in the post-exile generation. So this is after they've been carted off to Babylon for 70 years. Now they've entered back into the land. They've been in the land for over 100 years now. Things have progressed very slowly. They're still under the thumb of, of the Assyrian powerhouse in the world. They've learned their lesson about idolatry through the exile. They've learned they can't worship Baal in their midst. They can't have Asherah poles in their high, high places. They can't commit child sacrifices on their high hills. They've learned that through their exile. And here they are. The temple has been rebuilt, though it's a shell of its former glory in Solomon's day. The walls of Jerusalem through the ministry of Nehemiah have been restored and rebuilt, and they're back in the city of Jerusalem. Slowly the nation is regaining its strength and its status, but they're wondering why it's taking so long. Why are the promises of God, especially through the prophet Zechariah, not coming to fruition? Why are we still struggling? And you can imagine these Judah families that came back from exile, came back into a land where they had to seek to reestablish themselves financially. They had to start up their family business again and make their business and family connections again and, and try to find a way forward for their own living. And, and somebody probably got the bright idea that, you know what, if we divorce the wife of our youth and, and marry this foreign woman who's already in the land, whose family already has business established, we can marry into basically a, a trade guild, basically just marry into wealth and opportunity. And so they seemed to tolerate this practice for the sake of financial stability 
and gain. We, we see hints of this financial struggle throughout the book of Malachi. You see it right in verse 17. I didn't read that verse, but it ends with them questioning, why does God bless those who do evil and not those who are righteous? And what they're talking about are, are the financial and physical blessings of life. Well, why are we struggling and, and people who are against God are not? Look at those pagan nations. They're thriving. And here we are suffering in the promised land and trying to eke out a living. You see a hint of this in their practice of divorce and remarriage. They're making the allowance for divorce in Deuteronomy 24 to, to be spread to a financial situation, abusing the word of God for their own financial stability. And here they are violating the covenant of God. This practice, we know, is also condemned by Ezra and Nehemiah, men who ministered around the same time as Malachi. So we know this isn't just a momentary problem for the people of God. It's an ongoing one. And they've tolerated it for a long time. And God, through Malachi, finally says, listen, enough is enough. This rampant and flippant divorce and remarriage for financial gain and stability is an abomination in my sight. And it needs to be dealt with and stopped. God's design and God's purpose for marriage were being polluted, and God is not pleased. And to be clear, as we kind of lay the groundwork here, this is not a condemnation of, of all divorce and remarriage. So God never intended for divorce. It's a blight upon his design and covenant design for marriage. But in Deuteronomy 24, among other places, we read of an allowance by God because of the hardness of man's hearts. And it was always in the case of, of ongoing sexual immorality or abandonment of an unbeliever, as we learn in the New Testament, namely in 1 Corinthians 7 through the pen of Paul. Jesus reiterates in Matthew 19 that, don't you know from the beginning, it wasn't this way. God intended one man for one woman for one life, but Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, allowed for situations of divorce. But the standard is high, not low. The standard for marriage is high, and the allowance for divorce is, is small. Not wide is the gate for divorce. And if, you, if your wife burns the toast that morning, as was said in Jesus' day, and you didn't like it anymore, you could divorce her, get rid of her, and marry another who wouldn't burn your toast anymore. This flippant divorce and remarriage without biblical warrant is the grounds of this abomination to the Lord in our text. And, and this is so much of what happens in the lifestyles of the ungodly, right? This is a picture of marriage and its practice in the world around us. Marriage gets reduced to a contract. It can be molded to fit the felt needs of those involved. It can even be put off and you know, just live together and try to figure out, will this work in a contractual situation called marriage, and let, let's try it first. It's a minimizing of the covenant aspect of marriage. As a couple that marries in this contractual mindset, they, they have this love and attraction for each other in their early years, but as they, as they age, as does happen, we get a little bigger and a little uglier and a little less hair in places we would like to have it, and that love wanes if it's only based on those realities. And so to be happy again in worldly situations, they determine to end the marriage and seek happiness in another relationship. Whether by one spouse pushing that or by both, they part ways and divorce end their marriage. 
not to mention the many perversions and complete abominations before the Lord of marriage, as it is so called in our culture of men marrying men or women marrying women or some adult marrying their pet, which is happening. We see this pollution of, of marriage and perversion of God's design rapidly advancing in the world. But this is nothing new in worldly societies, nothing new. In the 1700s, there was an English historian, his name was Edward Gibbon. He wrote a multi-volume set entitled The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. I have not read it. I Google searched and pulled this fact out, all right? So don't think I'm smart, because I'm not. In that work, he's detailing what he thinks to be the five reasons for why the Roman Empire fell. And the Roman Empire was considered to be an inconquerable, indomitable force. Nobody could crack its exterior and cause it to fall. And you know, as he went through those reasons, you know the first reason he gave for their fall, decline and fall? is the rapid increase of divorce in Roman society, which in turn destroyed the dignity of the home and removed the basis for the rest of normal society. So this is not an American problem. This is not a Jewish problem. This is not a Roman problem. This is not a French problem. This is a human problem. We as humans tend to minimize the high standard of God relating to marriage. But what about the people of God? And that's the question on the table from this text. Shouldn't it be different with us? You see, Malachi is not tied in knots about the Assyrians' marriages and their situation. He's riled up over the flippant faithlessness of God's people. And so what do we learn from that confrontation from God's prophet to God's people? How can we grow from their negative example? Well, did you notice the, the command of the text repeated twice at the end of verse 15 and the end of verse 16? He says, so guard yourselves and do not be faithless. That's the, the positive takeaway from their negative example this morning is that we must guard our marriage covenant so that we do not fall into these same life-altering and sinful traps that the children of Israel, Israel did in Malachi's day. And so from their negative example, I want to lay before you three reasons why we have to guard the covenant of marriage. Before we do that, I want to address two things. The first, and I think the most important of, of the whole sermon is this, that our only hope of being faithful in any relationship commitment, especially in our marriage commitment, is found outside of us and not inside of us. You are not the answer to faithfulness in your marriage. Left to you, you will fail. You will falter and you will prove to not be enough. But there is an answer outside of you who we have already celebrated and rejoiced in this morning and that one outside of you is Christ alone. He in His perfect righteousness and thorough faithfulness redeems us, but He also enables us, empowers us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling He has placed upon us as his children. You see, we simply cannot clean ourselves up enough to have good enough marriages, which 
perfectly reflect the glory of God and display the mystery of Christ and His church. We can't do that by ourselves. This is why Paul in Ephesians 5, when he's addressing the reality of marriage and he speaks to wives and then to husbands, he doesn't, he doesn't point them to what they need to do singularly. He doesn't just say, wives, your key responsibility is submit to your husbands. Husbands, your key responsibility is to submit to your wives. No, he grounds the command of that responsibility in the example and the empowerment of Christ. As Christ, the Son, submitted to the Father, so too you wives submit to your husbands. As the Son, Jesus, came and loved the church and gave himself up for it, so you too, husbands, love your wives. He's not just telling you the example, he's telling you how it's even possible. Because Christ has already accomplished it on our behalf. And so as as branches, we root ourselves into the vine. This is faith at work in sanctification. And marriage has a good job of showing us what still needs sanctified, right? Yeah, I know. Let me tell you about my spouse. No, no, I'm talking about in you, right? Marriage has a good way of bringing to the surface things in you that still need changed by the grace of Christ. And the answer here is not pull yourself up by your spiritual bootstraps and figure this out and just love your wife, man. How hard is this? Well, it must be pretty hard because Christ had to give his life for it. The answer here is look to Christ. Look outside of yourselves for your only hope and abide in him. And by faith, receive not just his example, but his empowerment. That he can help you be what you could never be on your own. And in that, it is all of grace alone and all to his glory alone. This is what Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And my life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So whatever you hear this morning, do not hear a moralistic message of how you need to clean yourselves up and do better in marriage. Hear a gospel-centered message that Christ is your only hope, that you might have a better marriage as you look to Him by faith and are empowered by His grace. The second thing I must address is that not everyone in this room is married. And I want you to know that is not lost on this preacher. He has lost sleep over this reality, actually. How do you preach a text on marriage and divorce to a mixed company of those who are not married or maybe have been married and either now widowed or even divorced themselves or maybe who have not yet been married. What do you say to them from this text? Some among us, you see marriage in the rearview mirror of life as you come down the home stretch of your own journey. For still others, marriage is, is somewhere ahead of you, out the front windshield of life. And by God's kind providence, someday you'll know a married reality. And for some of you, in God's providential plan, it is not in His design for your life to be married. So, so what is there in this text for you? Just keel over on the pew and take a little nap? Or is there something here for you? How should you engage with this truth from this text? Well, for those looking back on marriage, you may certainly have much to praise God for if you experienced the goods of the good things of this text. 
If you knew something different than this in the marriage God blessed you with, then give praise and honor to Him. You also know if you're not married now, you know how to pray for and protect the marriages of those around you, friends and family who you so dearly love. You know how to pray for them from this text and how to seek to protect their relationship in their marriage. And those of you looking ahead to marriage someday, this text knows you, helps you know how to think God's thoughts after him on marriage. It's one of the clearest texts in the Bible of, of how God views this marriage covenant to learn from him before you ever enter in. And with that in mind, why should we guard our hearts and walk by faith as we guard the marriage covenant? The first reason I see in verse 10, verses 10 through 14 actually is so that we can preserve our worship. We should protect the marriage covenant to preserve our worship. What I mean by that is that there is an unbreakable bond between our lives and our worship. Between how we live and what it is that matters most to us. And that, that's what you worship. What you value most in any given moment is what you worship. And that comes out in then your lifestyle. And this is most obviously true in the most important relationships in your life, and if you're married, especially that of marriage. So how we relate to our spouse is evidence of how we relate to God, how we think about God, how we value God, how we treasure God. There's an unbreakable bond between worship and lifestyle. This is what was such an abomination, I think, then to the Lord in this text. These men are divorcing their wives and taking to themselves the daughters of of foreign gods at the end of verse 11. This means they're, they're uniting themselves into the one flesh union of marriage designed by God to those who are entirely spiritually incompatible at the most basic level. But they don't even accept reality A of the alphabet of truth in the world, that God is. And yet these men are seeking to join into a marriage relationship connected by God's design at the most fundamental level in a human relationship when there is not compatibility from square one. And God says that is an abomination in my sight. And in fact, God's so wise, amazingly, he knew they were going to do this before they ever entered the land. And he told them not to, remember? Remember from the mouth of Moses, that preacher in Deuteronomy, the second recounting of the law? Chapter 7, he's telling them, listen, when you go in, you shall not intermarry with them. He's talking about the seven nations that still inhabit the promised land. He goes on to say, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. In case they missed Moses' message, Joshua reiterates it at the end of his life, his final sermon before he passes off the scene and we enter into the season of the judges. He says, listen, be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes 
until you perish off this good ground that the Lord has given you. You see how Joshua rooted their obedience not in mere obedience, but in love for God. Go in and love me by not intermarrying so that your heart is not drawn away from me by these wrong marriages. This happened to Solomon, right? This is a classic example, illustration of someone who thought he could missionary date and it would all work out okay. And he did it for the sake of the, of the nation, right? The, the stakes were higher for him. I mean, certainly God's going to bless this intermarriage with a foreign nation because the blessing of his people is at stake here, right? You, you can see how you could justify if you're Solomon marrying across uh, territorial lines into another kingdom because it's for the good of God's people. And if God's going to bless an intermarrying situation, it's going to be this one, right? Wrong. Exactly what God said would happen through Moses and Joshua is what happened to Solomon. Here's the story of Solomon at the end of his life. 1 Kings 11. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Solomon clung to these in love, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. And now we've come to Malachi's day, and men in Malachi's day are doing this on a flippant and rampant level, and they are polluting their worship of the one true God. Their, their worship of God is at stake here. Their love for God is at stake here. Fidelity to God is fostered by fidelity to their marriage covenant. Faithfulness to God and true worship of God is endangered and destroyed by their rebellious marriage practices. You see, rampant divorce and marrying foreign and ungodly women is not helpful to worshiping God. And so he says, don't. Do this anymore. It's a serious breach of their covenant relationship. Notice in verses 10 and 11 that it's a community problem, not just a personal problem. Yeah, there are individual marriages that are on the line here that are being ruined, but it's not just a, a husband and wife concern. The Lord says the whole community is breaking covenant with one another, and, and all of Judah has been corrupted by this practice. The Lord calls all of the people onto the carpet and says, You've tolerated this in your midst. You've let this be what it is, and, and you all will stand to account. So God says, you've been faithless, and you must repent. This wasn't just a personal worship problem. It was a corporate community worship problem. And the same is true in the church today. A marriage which is in trouble is not simply the concern of that family or of that husband and that wife. It's a concern of, of the community of believers. And I know that's sensitive to talk about. And boy, how does that work? Well, it works according to God's design within the body of Christ as brothers and sisters get close to us and realize, hey, this marriage is in trouble. They come alongside and they're equipped by the Spirit of God with the truth of God to help marriages in trouble and to point them in the right direction in obedience and faith in Christ. There's also built-in accountability within the body of Christ, which if you shirk that, you do that to the disregard of your own marriage. Your own marriage is damaged by your unwillingness to commit yourself to the accountability 
and the oversight of the body of Christ, designed by Christ to help us stay faithful. This is a community concern. In fact, it's such a concern, God calls it an abomination in verse 11. Malachi says that the people who do this should be cast out and their, their tents cut off from Jacob. That word abomination is a deadly, serious word. In the Old Testament, it's used to describe a thing of horror, something that's morally repugnant, that, that shouldn't even really be named among God's people. It's used to condemn such things as, as homosexual acts and ritualistic prostitution and idolatry and witchcraft and human sacrifice. Now, this is not a prestigious group of sins. These are, these are not silent, light things. This ups the importance of the concern before God. This is no minor flaw in God's people. This is not a wart on the skin of the body of Christ. This is a cancer inside of them that's eating them alive and will ultimately destroy their witness to the Lord. This is a worship issue. They fell into this pit of minimizing marriage and maximizing financial stability because they lost sight of God. That's how verse 10 begins, isn't it? He says, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? He immediately points them back to their unique creator and father, not in the universal sense of creating all things, but in the specific sense of creating them as his chosen people. He says, you've forgotten who made you. You've forgotten who put you together, who called you to be his chosen people. And as they've fallen away from a high and exalted view of God, they've fallen into faithlessness toward God and toward one another. As one author said, forgetfulness will lead to faithlessness. Forgetfulness will lead to faithlessness. So faithfulness to the marriage covenant in your life is a worship issue. It is about your relationship with your God. You can turn that truth over and look at it from the other side as well. Our practices in our marriage covenant are downstream indicators of our worship of God. So I'm looking at it from the front angle, the proactive angle. As you worship God rightly, you'll be faithful in your marriage. You can, you can look at it from the back angle as well, that if you're not worshiping God as you ought, flowing downstream from that lack of true worship is going to be faithlessness to your marriage covenant in some way or another. It might not look like flippant, rampant divorce and remarriage in situations you shouldn't have, but it might look in other, like other things. And you can, in your own mind, imagine all the ways you might be unfaithful to your spouse. That's a worship issue before it's an obedience issue. You've forgotten who God is, and you become faithless in your relationship with your spouse. We must guard the marriage covenant to preserve our worship. We must also guard our covenant of marriage because it upholds our commitment to our spouse. We see that in verses 14 and 15. This dismissive practice of widespread divorce and remarriage is highly offensive to God because it, it shows a lack of commitment to the covenant of marriage. God takes it way more seriously than they do. He sends his prophet to them and say, what are you doing? Have you forgotten what this is? This is no light matter. This isn't a contractual agreement by which you can just throw it away at your own whim. This is a covenant you've made before God. In verse 14, they genuinely wonder, why isn't God hearing us? You've had that experience, right? 
Like, what's wrong with God? Where's he at? Why hasn't he met that need yet? What's going on in my life? Where is the Lord? And sometimes God has us wait and patience developing our faith, and it's a positive waiting. Sometimes in Judah's case, it's a, a corrective waiting. He's withheld his blessing to get their attention, to get their eyes fixed on him so they would say, what is happening, Lord? What's wrong in our relationship? Notice that they don't see clearly that there's a problem. They're, they're going about normal practices of worship, and they're oblivious to, to their own sinfulness. They're blind to their own issues, which is so much the case for us. Left to ourselves, we're like, everything's fine. We give ourselves allowances, and we give cover to sinful thoughts, and then they turn into sinful desires and, and sinful practices. And before we know it, our marriage is on the brink, and we're wondering, what happened here? Well, you certainly did not just wake up one day thinking, I want to end this marriage. You slowly digress, thinking everything was fine, while all the while giving cover to sin. The Lord is witness to this covenant of marriage before them, and He sees it clearly, and He calls it out in them in these verses. He says He was a witness to that covenant as they made it. So you can't casually cast it off for financial gain, because you're going to answer to me for that, is what He's saying, essentially. Their lack of faithfulness to their marriage is displaying their, their lack of honor to the Lord. But they really don't take it all that seriously that before Him they said, I do and I will. Notice the threefold description of that marriage bond in verse 14. It's one of the most power-packed descriptions of marriage in all of Scripture. Malachi calls her the wife of your youth and your companion, and your wife by covenant. The wife of your youth is intended to send these men back in their memories to those early days of, of young love when their attraction to their spouse was a, a magnet to their love of this one woman. This word companion is a word used only here in Malachi in reference to marriage, to a spouse. It's used in other texts to, to talk about the bond in, in a construction scene where, where pillars or beams are are bonded together in perfection so that they're immovable. And you can build on top of that bond a structure of a building. It's an unbreakable, permanent bond. It's bolstered by that third description where he says, your wife by covenant. It takes him back to that idea of that marriage covenant being before God. It's not a, a casual man-made contract. It's not man's idea, nor is it man's doing. It's God's design and it's God's power that makes it work and it's before God that we say, yes, I will. Which raises the importance of marriage and compels commitment to marriage. It's reiterated in verse 15 when he lays before you the, the way marriage came about. And you have to know Malachi 2.15 is one of the most difficult to translate into English in all of Malachi's book. I think the gist of the idea in verse 15 is that marriage was accomplished by God for His purpose. So it again puts a divine and eternal importance upon temporal marriage bonds between one man and one woman for one life. Verse 15 says God is responsible for making two into one flesh in marriage. That's Genesis 2.24, right? Where God took Adam and put him to sleep and from his rib made Eve designed for him, fit for him, to be a fitting 
help me for him. And then God joined them together to now two flesh to become again one flesh in marriage. Still two bodies, still two people, still two souls, but joined together in God's mysterious power to be one flesh. And then he goes on to say, what God has put together, let not any man, including the two bound together, separate. Let them not tear this apart. And God called it very good in Genesis 2, you remember. This was done, Malachi says, with a, a portion of the Spirit of God. It's a hard phrase to interpret, but I think what he means is that God didn't exhaust himself in making Adam and Eve and putting them together in marriage. He, he could have, If he needed more options for Adam, he had more power of the Spirit available to make more options. It was just a portion of his Spirit by which he accomplished this work, and, and it was a perfect and good design, and, and he had nothing left to do. And he intended for them to be united together for life. And then he goes on to give us the divine purpose in verse 15. What was that one God seeking, he says in the middle, and he answers it with godly offspring. Now, there's lots of purposes, divine purposes for marriage. The ultimate one being the glory of God as we put on display, as Ephesians 5 says, the union between Christ and his church. That's the ultimate purpose for marriage by God's design. But there's other designs for marriage. One of those divine designs for marriage by God himself is that those marriages would have children, godly offspring. We see that in Genesis 1 with the creation mandate that they are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. This command by the Lord is best fulfilled within the confines of his design. So he gives a command in chapter 1 and then he gives the, the method, the means, the mechanism in chapter 2. So be, multi be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, chapter 1. Do that through marriage, chapter 2. He intended for godly offspring. It's the expected outcome of the marriage relationship. Children are a blessing and a gift from the Lord for a marriage. They help to strengthen the marriage, not to weaken it, by the way. Done God's way, they, they strengthen the marriage bond. They don't weaken it. Now, they have potential, if you walk in your flesh... And as you respond to fleshly little children who are not yet in Christ, challenging you at every turn, you can easily weaken your marriage bond. But that's not God's design. God's design in marriage is for them to strengthen the marriage bond and to advance His purposes of godly offspring. Now you know, and I must say, not every marriage has children. And that's not a problem in God's design. It's, it's the mystery of His providence. And also the reality of the mess of a sin-cursed world. And some marriages, some lives have realities where having kids can't happen or hasn't yet happened. Just like your physical body has issues mine doesn't have. And mine has some that yours doesn't have because we live in a sin-cursed world. It's part of the reality of where we live and waiting for the return of our Lord. But the point of the text is that childlessness should not be sought or selfishly celebrated like it is being in our culture today. Like dink couples, you've heard of them, dual income, no kids. They're a social media craze right now because they have time and money and availability to do whatever they want to do. And so they post on social media as a dink couple all the cool things they get to do because they don't have children. And they try to maximize and celebrate what 
is not in accord with God's design. Don't drink the Kool-Aid here, beloved. Don't take what the world is selling. Don't buy it from their marketplace. It's a pack of lies straight from the pit of hell. Kids are a gift from the Lord. And God intends for marriages to produce children so that they can be taught in the faith and raised to the glory of God and the purposes of His cause. And so when marriage is dissolved by flippant divorce and replaced by a flippant remarriage, God's divine purpose is greatly hindered and harmed. Not destroyed. God's a God of grace who makes beauty out of ashes all the time. Every one of our lives is a display of that. So it's not hopeless if that happens, but it is greatly hindered. The power of God to bring two people together to make them into one flesh union is now yanked apart by sinful and selfish lusts of mankind. We expect that in the world, but this practice should find no cover in the people of God. We ought, must, have to be different here. We also must guard our marriage covenant to protect our spouse. That's in verse 16. It's also a difficult one to translate into English. One way to read it is how the NASB translates it. It says, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. That makes God the main subject of verse 16, and particularly of that first verb of hate. And it supplies the first person plural pronoun, I, into the text. It's not in the Hebrew text. It's imported in, in that translation, to try to help make sense of it. The difficulty with that translation, from my view, is that the Hebrew verb is in the third person singular. Excuse me, third person plural. So another way to translate it is the ESV or the NIV. It says, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. I think that matches the Hebrew better, but the message is essentially the same. God is roundly condemning this practice of divorce and remarriage because it does violence to the man's spouse. He's already called it an abomination, so you don't need verse 16 to be translated that God says he hates divorce. He hates it. It's clear there, this kind of divorce particularly. That idea of the garment, it's a a Hebrew idiom for spreading your protection and cover and care over your wife. What the Lord is saying is when a man flippantly divorces his wife for some ridiculous reason, he's spreading not care and comfort and protection, but violence over her. He's hurting her and ruining her and destroying her. The very one that's to help her and protect her and provide for her is becoming the opposite. And God hates that. It's an abomination in his sight. So we must guard our hearts and pursue faithfulness to our Lord and to our spouse, so that we do not hurt them. So I ask you this morning, does your attitude about and actions in your marriage or in your future marriage reflect the truths of this text? How you act here is a direct display of your worship of God and your faith-filled dependence on Him or your faithlessness in Him. Your keeping of this covenant commitment is a display of of Christ's love for us. It's your returning that love to Him in obedient faith. Your marriage is a picture to the world of 
that mysterious union between Christ and his bride, the church, and it's a display of his glory. Beloved, the stakes are high. It matters to God. It matters to the church. And if by some work of sin and flesh, your marriage has been destroyed or being destroyed, no, there is grace here for you. That's not, this text doesn't address that, but others do. No, there's a hope and a future for you in the grace and mercy of Christ. For as a church, by God's kindness, may we hold high the standard of God for the glory of God out of worship for God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we praise you for the clarity of this text, and we ask for your help that we would be men and women who, by faith, abide by the truth presented here. I pray for any marriages within our own church family that are struggling in these very areas. Father, I ask that you would compel your beloved children with this truth to remember you, to return to you by faith, and to seek by your kindness to be faithful to you and faithful to their spouse. Lord, we pray that you would make us to be a body, not of perfection, for we'll never be that, but of progressing purity, especially in this category. Help us, Father, to be a church family that displays to the world the design you have so clearly spoken. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name.